Shinjin Stories Podcast. My name is Trey Hobbs, and we are back after a very long break. The uh, the break, I'm not sure if you've heard this, uh, was due to us unable to have any live events whatsoever uh, and being stuck tight in China. Uh, we have, uh, you know, been lucky enough to stay very safe and um, everything... As a whole is fine, but we have very much missed our Shenzhen Stories community. Recently, uh, we have been able to rejoin in person. And today's podcast is really going to focus on that last live event we had. Uh, we had this event uh, in Nanshan at the lovely Moore's Coffee, uh, if you ever get around there. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing find. Very good coffee. But I also wanted to really just uh, say how thankful we were that so many people came out uh, safely, safely, came out safely in person to be with us and hear these amazing stories that you're about to hear on the podcast. Um, We tried to do some online events, and they were very fun for those of us who were there online, but the sound audio was terrible. So um, we're really happy that those stories got shared and got put out there, Um, and we're really, really thankful to our people uh, in all of their various stages of quarantine who joined us on that Zoom call. Um, But we are so thankful to be back, and we will continue to share our stories to our friends uh, here and abroad, um, especially abroad, but we will do that on our podcast uh, because uh, those hybrid events where we we tried to do live and Zoom, uh, let's let's just say um, they could use some some more improvement. I'll leave it there. I'll just leave it there. But we are just so thankful that you are listening wherever you are right now. So. First things first, uh, just in case you don't know, and this is your first time checking Shenzhen Stories out, Shenzhen Stories started about four years ago in uh, Shenzhen, China. Um, We really wanted to create something around 2016, uh, around December of 2016, that focused on community and togetherness. And so we looked around and we thought about all of the stories uh, and these micro moments that people just lived next to us, but that we had no idea about. We, we thought about the people on uh, the bus and, and on the subway and, and, and even at our jobs. We're walking down the streets in our very neighborhoods that we could know all of these different ways of knowing how to look at the world. Uh, and we just wanted to create a space where that was uh, given a stage that this different way of seeing the world was given a stage and that we invited people to come take part in viewing a world outside of the one that they knew. And hopefully, and what we have seen and experienced is that when people do that, they see themselves in this other person, in this other experience, 
And that mirroring is extremely beautiful when we get to sort of like recognize ourselves in another person and, and know that we have more in common than we thought. And so this night was not any different. Uh, we had a very wide range of stories and themes and amazing storytellers, uh, both prepared and uh, names that came out of the hat. Um, but we, we love our community. Uh, we, we strive to create this international community uh, in, in Shenzhen because there are so many nationalities here, backgrounds, religions, just cultures mixing all together, um, obviously Chinese and American and Japanese and Korean and Canadian and uh, African, and we, we've seen them all come through Shenzhen Stories, and we want to, to hear your story. And so at the end of the podcast, you'll hear a little bit more about how you can get involved and how you can get in touch with us. Um, but without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first storyteller of the evening, uh, Freddie Myers, who uh, has joined us and... Uh, recently has joined Shenzhen Stories recently, but also has been able to return to China recently. And she shares a story about the silver linings of meeting her mother again for the first time and how she was able to get closer uh, to a woman that she thought she could not anymore. Enjoy Freddie's story. Um, so I'm going to start by doing what I do best and, and, and be a teacher, because that's what I do for a living. And I'm going to um, ask you to um, tap into your prior knowledge. So I would like you to think about what are some of your first memories of, of the first kind of like memorable moments that you have in your life that you that you can like clearly picture. You got those? And I want you to think about how you felt <laughs> in those moments. Yep. All right. Now I'm not gonna ask you to think, pair, share, but um, I will now ask you to think about a parent figure or like your mom or your dad or if, you know a parent figure. And what kind of stories would you tell about them? Or would you like recall if you were with people who knew them really well? Yeah, you got those, you can feel them, you, you can think about them. So <clears throat> I've got three memorable moments that I can think about from when I was young. Now, to be fair, I am not a visual person, so I don't have that capacity to think of, like, moments in my head and think about, like, the film. I always envy people who can think about those moments in their lives and they see it as a film almost, you know? Um, like, I can literally not picture my husband's face. I've been with him for over 17 years and I still have a hard time thinking about what he actually looked like in my head, right? But I do have three kind of memorable moments from when I was little. The first one, I was about four years old 
And I decided I was going to walk down the street and I was going to go see my friend Melody, even though my mom had told me, you're not going to go see your friend Melody. I was like, eh. And I walked down the street to my friend Melody's house, knock on the door. Her mom answers and says, no, you can't see Melody. She's got chicken pox. And then the vivid memory of my mom just walking down the street, just, what are you doing? Get back inside. Let's go right now. So then I'm like, okay. So then that was my first. That was actually like one of the first things that I can ever remember in my life. And then my second memory, I'm five years old. And my mom makes me eat reheated chicken for lunch. I hate reheated chicken. I hate it with a passion. Like, it, it's to this day, I, I will not eat reheated chicken. If I make a chicken dish, I will not make enough so that we can have leftovers. That's not happening. I'm not eating leftover chicken, no. So my mom insists. I'm five years old. I'm like, not, not doing it. So she takes my little sister to take a nap. I walk out the door. I'm running away. I'm done. Not doing this, not eating this stuff. And so I get picked up by a lady. And what are you doing? What are you doing to me? What are you doing? Ah, you're the worst. Ah, go to your room. So second most vivid moment in my life, my mom's screaming at me again. And then one of my other memory is when I'm about seven years old, I used to go to day camp every summer because, you know, your parents work and you go to day camp. And so at the end of day camp, at the end of like the summer, we always have like this pageant, right, where you like make up like plays or you do dances and you like show off what you've learned. You showcase what you've learned over the summer at summer camp. And so I was part of this like little troops of dancers and we had made like these, you know, skirts out of like um, paper and we were going to dance to um, uh, a wimboy, a wimboy, a wimboy, a wimboy in the jungle, the mighty jungle. And so I'm like on stage and I'm like, wimboy, like this, you know, I'm going with it. And, um, and I remember this very clearly. I get off the stage, I'm super proud of myself and my mom goes, you know, if you're going to practice for that long, at least you should try to follow the beat of the music. So, yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine that my relationship with my mom has been rocky, to say the least, for many, many years as we continue to, you know, go through lots of times where... I would get criticized a lot for everything. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I get 99% in my French test. Why didn't you get 100? I made a spelling mistake. We're going to work on your spelling. Okay. 
Thank you. <laughs> you know, I know it's like this all the time. Um, I tried to do lots of things to please her, and it was never enough. I was never good enough, and there was a lot of anger. And then my parents got separated, and I didn't understand why they were separating, but all I knew is that for the first time and only time in my life, I saw my dad crying, like sobbing, tears that were just heartbreaking to a child. And for me, that was like, all right, I'm team dad. That's it. Like, I'm team dad. And then my parents got back together. And I was like, okay, okay. All right, I was still team dad. And so we would sit at the table and we would have those dinners. And you know those dinners, right? Where my mom would start talking about something and then my dad and I would look at each other and we'd get, you have that look. You know that look that you have with certain people and you just like, it's like you just connect, right? It's like you're complicit in that look. And I think that made my mom angrier and angrier and angrier. And so, you know, there was a lot of slam doors, a lot of I hate you, and a lot of very big emotions at our house. And then my parents separated again. And so one day I come home from, I was a ski instructor, and I'm coming home, and I see my dad's car is there. I'm like, oh, cool, daddy's here. So I go into the house, and they're all sitting at the table looking very serious, because my brother is 10 years younger than me, and they're like deciding his future. Where is he gonna go? Who is he gonna go with? Is he gonna stay with my dad? Is he gonna go with my mom? And so I'm like, ooh backing away from that conversation, go back downstairs, sit on the couch and wait. And uh, my dad leaves, doesn't even come and say goodbye, nothing. And then my mom comes down, throws papers at me and goes, you should be happy now, and walks away. Divorce papers. So I grab them, go back up the stairs, put them on the table in front of her. I don't even say anything. I walk away. And that's what I started doing. Just walking away every single time. Walk away. Walked away to the point where I walked myself all the way to England. So I did not have to deal with any of that stuff anymore. And then I met my husband, Ryan, and so we've been together for, you know, 17 and a half years now, and we, it's such a different relationship, and I think partly because of watching my parents and as I grew up, but still, you know, there was always those time where we had to spend time with my mom, and there would be door slamming, or me walking away, or like even all through this time, always trying to avoid having to be angry at her and showing her how angry I was. So it went like that for a 
time. And like, I just, people would talk about their parents or they would say like, you know, they would, I had a friend whose mom died and I loved her mom. I was sad that her mom died. And it actually made me stop and think, oh my gosh, if my mom dies now, I'm so angry. I'm so unhappy with our relationship. I don't know if I would be sad. Like, that's awful. And every time I would go home, my sister and I would get together, and all we could think about, all we could talk about, was how our mom was treating us all the time, even as adults. Like, we would just, like, to the point where one day we looked at each other and we were like, do we have any positive memories of our relationship with our mom? Like, what is going on? What is happening? What has happened? And then I said, well, my therapist said that I should let it go. And she goes, oh, well, my therapist said I should let it go. <laughs> how? How do we do that? How? How? Right? And so then COVID happened. And my sister calls me, and actually, like, a year ago. And she's like... I need a babysitter for Tuesday. Mom is not going to do it. She's refusing to come down. Blah, blah, blah. Once again, I'm stuck. I can't do it. And we had just gotten the news that we weren't coming back to school for two weeks. So Ryan says, you should go to Montreal. Go to Montreal. Be with your sister. Help your sister. She needs it. We have the points. You know, we can get a free air airplane ticket. Go to Montreal. Do it. Because... This is not working. So I go to Montreal, and of course, because I come to Montreal, my mom decides to show up and babysit with me. <laughs> so I'm like, great, that's all it takes. <laughs> I have to come. So then we were chasing tickets to try and get back, and we never ended up coming back. And so what started as like a couple of weeks of me hanging out with my mom and my sister became like a month, and then it became like two months, and then it became a long time. And I hadn't been there in like over 17 years for that amount of time. And because of the generosity of SIS, they started this program where we were able to talk to um, this wonderful woman called Tracy. And I was reflecting on a lot of the things that we were doing. We were having a lot of aha moments. I was, anyway. And I was like, I can't keep doing this. Like, I can't keep feeling this way all the time when I'm home. And I, I have to figure this out. And she mentioned something about the language of love or the languages of love. And so I was like, maybe that's my how. Maybe that's what I need, right? And so I ended up looking into it a little bit and then realizing that, like, my mom and I had never spoken language of love. Like, never. 
We were not on the same page at all, ever. And so during the summer, at, in spring, she started telling me about this garden that she wanted to, um, to plant. She had just gotten like rid of every single plant. It was like clean slate can start over. And I remember her talking about a garden like oh, 30 years before, right? About how she was like wanting this garden. And so I was like, I'm not gonna walk away. I won't do it anymore. I think that there is a chance that throughout the years, my mom has been trying to show us that she has changed a little bit, that she has changed a lot, like every single person. There's a chance that she has been trying to open the door for me to come back to talk to her, to, to fix things. And, and so I was like, all right, the garden, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give her quality time. I'm going to I'm going to take pictures of all these plants that she wants and I'm going to go get them for her. I'm going to give her a gift. I'm going to give her the gift of the plants and I'm going to give her my time. And at the end of the summer when we had this beautiful garden done my sister and I were talking, and I realized that I had changed my story about my mom, and that I actually want her to, like, you know, live for like 20, 30 more years so that we can catch up on all of this time that we just did not understand each other. And I want to be able to continue to speak her language of love because after she did that, after I did that, I got stories from her. And I was really, I was finally able to, like she was talking about these stories and she was remembering things that I didn't remember. And that's my silver lining because of COVID. I was able to completely change my relationship with my mother. Not only that, but like I know now that if she passes away, and I hope it's in 30 years from now or whatever, that I will have stories to say about her. I'm gonna have good things to say. I'm, I'm going to be able to be sad that I've lost this relationship. And so although COVID has been terrible in many ways, has separated me from my, um, my husband and my sons, it's given me my mom. We want to say a huge thank you to Freddie. That story was just so beautiful, and she was really brave. She put it all out there, and uh, I just love 
love, love that she was able to find this silver lining and, and take that risk, take the risk of sort of opening herself up, uh, not just to her mother and, and what could have happened in that situation, but to us in the room. And to me, that's when storytelling uh, is its bravest. Uh, it's this really brave act to sort of like bring your life into someone else's parameters, right? So Freddie coming in and telling the story and all of our storytellers telling their story, it's a very brave act. But I always tell our audiences too that listening to stories can also be a brave act. It doesn't, bringing your own story and sort of allowing yourself to be open to someone else's point of view isn't an easy thing to do either. It takes bravery for your own perspectives to take a back seat, um, and I love that our audience is so willing to do that. And our audience especially, uh, and I'm going to talk specifically about myself here, uh, maybe wasn't so willing to do this because this next story came out of a hat. We pass a hat around, and so people who are so moved by uh, the other stories that they want to sort of in include their own, they're welcome to, and so they're, they're invited to put their names into a hat and tell a story right off the cuff. And our first hat story of the evening was uh, Katie Hobbs. And before you go, wait, is she isn't the guy talking? Yes, yes. So she's my wife, and I had no idea she was telling a story. And... Uh, and uh, it was uh, it was a hoot and completely unexpected for me, um, and it was nice to sort of be I think um, on the receiving end and sort of have that feeling of of what it might feel like if uh, someone was telling a story with you in it. And I, I feel like we've had a lot of speakers experience that, and a lot of audience members experience that. And so now I've experienced that, and uh, and to. To all of you who have sat in the audience while your partners have uh, told a story uh, about you or with you in it, I, I salute you. I salute you. Um, but I made it through and had a blast. Please enjoy Katie Hobbs' hat story. And my family lives in Chicago, and Trey's family lives in South Carolina. So we went to South Carolina, and there, my son, who was... Uh, seven months old got um, very sick and he, he got the flu and uh, he started to lose weight and got very sick, uh, very thin and it's so sad because he's such a chunky guy <laughs> if you know him and I love seeing him so chunky and his little thighs started to get thin and his little face and it got to the point where he wasn't eating, which is very weird for him because he loves to eat, you know? And we finally had to take him to the emergency room and it was not a fun time for us. And it was the night before we were gonna fly to Chicago. So we take him to the emergency room and he was so sick and we held him and we got him tested and he had the flu and they were, you have to, he'll be fine if you're going to let him be here. He'll get better. But you can also give him Theraflu. And we're like, he's very young. He's under a year old. Is this okay? And, and we don't know if it's okay. You know, we're not doctors. You tell us. Should we give it to him or not? You know, like they're telling us, what? like, you can doctor? give it to him and he'll get better really quickly, or you cannot give it to him and he might not get better. For, but he'll get better like later on. And we're like, what does that mean? 
figure it out. And so like, I guess we'll get it to it because we have to fly to Chicago tomorrow. Is it okay to take him on a flight to Chicago tomorrow? And the doctor looked at us and said, well, you can, and if you want to give the flu to everyone else. <laughs> but this was before COVID, so it seemed like, well, we're really going to Chicago tomorrow, so <laughs> he'll be fine. Uh, and we just spread the flu all over the country. And that's how things happen, people. And I'm sorry. No? Anyway, we, we, did, we did pay for the Theraflu. So we gave him that medicine. And that was also a weird thing to do because you're like, the doctor wants you to make so many decisions. And you're like, I did not go to medical school. Can you just tell me what to do? I am an art teacher. I teach art. So I can tell you how to decoupage this table. But like, if I need to give my eighth, eight month old baby Theraflu, you tell me, you know? Like, just yes or no. And so she was like, well, if you want to go, if you want to spread the flu to everyone in the country, go to Chicago. And we're like, well, we just pay for the ticket, so we're going to do it. And we did. And I'm so sorry. Um, we did. We gave him the Theraflu. He was fine. He, we got to Chicago, gained a little bit of weight. He started feeling better. And, but it was terrifying. And then we left Chicago on New Year's Eve. And um, of course, because it's Chicago, if you've ever been to Chicago, the weather sucks. And we were delayed on the <laughs> runway. And we got stuck in Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah. The butthole of the United States. And had to stay there overnight. We texted my, I was like texting my best friend who I knew lived in Texas, who I had not seen in four years, who I went to high school with in the Philippines. And she's like, oh, I, I'm actually in Dallas tonight to drop off my, my parents. I live three hours away. And so she came and met us at our weird hotel. <laughs> and we hung out with them for a few hours while our kids slept. And my son was fine, by the way. That's why we obviously were going to take him on a, you know, continental flight, because we're not monsters. <laughs> and everything was fine. He was totally healthy. We're not, you know, he was totally healthy. Both of our children were healthy. We met up with my best friend, who I've not seen since high, like for many years, and it was a really lovely time. Silver lining one. Then we came back to Shenzhen. We went back to work. And then, la da da, coronavirus happened. <laughs> and it was so terrifying. And everyone was leaving, especially people with young kids. And everyone was like, we got to leave, we got to go. And Trey and I, we were like, let's stay, let's stay, let's stay. And let's not talk about it too much because anxiety. And then it got to a point where it was like, oh, really? Everyone with young kids is leaving. What if something happens? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do with our kids? And then finally we're like, okay, we should just go home for a while. And we bought tickets. And we packed our bags. And the whole time it was very tense, like, how many diapers did you pack? Is it enough for the trip? How many 
outfits to know and need for a trip. How many times will I poop? Like you're like counting, you count each hour, and then you're like, you like backtrack from the hours. Like how many outfits will he need? How many outfits will I need in case something happens? And you're just counting and thinking about every minute of a trip. So you're, everything's okay. So you have everything you might possibly need. And then we packed up our bags, we zipped them up, we pulled them to the door, and as we're pulling through the door, we look at each other, and we have this moment where it's like, this is gonna suck, and, and Trey's like, oh yeah, it's gonna suck. I'm like, yeah, I definitely don't wanna go. And he's like, oh no, I don't wanna go either. I'm like, it was, it's gonna be the worst. And he's like, yeah, my nightmare. And, and we just keep going back and forth, and we're like, what if we didn't go? That would be crazy. Yeah, we shouldn't go. And we didn't. We didn't go. And we're adults. We can just cancel these flights. And it's going to cost us money. And I hate losing money, but we could cancel these flights. And we did. In that moment, we canceled the flights. And it was one of the best nights of our lives where of the whole situation, <laughs> aside from our engagement, aside from our engagement, which was the best night of my life, we were like, <laughs> many good nights also in our marriage. <laughs> so many good nights have happened together. One of them was when we canceled these tickets and we watched television and we said, we are adults, so we can do whatever we want. We just canceled tickets. It cost us $200. And we don't even care because we don't have to be on an airplane with our children or at our parents' house with our children. And that was amazing. But it turned out the silver lining is we were here and it was okay. And honestly, we're. We ended up being in the safest place ever. And if my if Noah hadn't gotten the flu, if we hadn't gotten delayed on Air O'Hare's like frigid ass runway <laughs> for five hours, which is you know the pit of hell, we would might we might have left, and we would have probably still been in my parents' basement. Now we're not there. And I'm so thankful because my son is okay. He's gained a lot of weight. He's gained all this like chunk back and he's like doing well. My daughter's doing great. We're doing like cool. And like wrap it up, wrap it up. So 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 I just wanna like talk to everybody in the room here. Um, but the silver, lining, the silver lining of all of this is that we stayed in the safest place on earth, and I'm so thankful that I never, I, I don't think I'm going to go anywhere again with my son until he can, like, just be okay. And You'll notice that a lot of these stories, of course, have a COVID theme. It's really hard to go anywhere without uh, COVID affecting your life. And so, of course, our stories will reflect that. Um, 
But our events also have themes, and this month's event um, was Silver Lining, and I am just so encouraged by all of these stories that we're able to find Silver Linings, even in this really strange, uh, at times dark time. Uh, And so uh, I just want to say thank you to those storytellers. I also just want to say that sometimes those stories don't have much to do with COVID, and when that happens, that's a breath of fresh air. And in comes Jen Simon. Now, she has a story about uh, being born deaf. I'll let her tell this story, but I will say that she beautifully describes what it looks like for someone to find themselves and treasure that. Please enjoy this story from Jen Simon. Um, So I have notes because I'm a high school teacher and this is how every single high school student does their presentation. (laughs) And I promise to say, so yeah, at the end, you all know what I'm talking about. Um, So when I started uh, thinking about silver linings, I went along in the same vein as Freddie. Thinking about memories um, and and thinking about our earliest memories. And I've been watching a lot of superhero movies at the same time that I'm thinking about this. And of course, I come to origin stories. And I start thinking about um, my origin as as my earliest memory. And and we'll get to that as we go through the story. Um, And we're talking about memories and how one side of your brain is for storytelling and one side is for memories. So maybe they're not the most accurate things. But there are things that happen early on in life that you remember, whether they're good or they're bad, or just kind of in between. Um, And so for me, my earliest memories are going to a Catholic preschool. And, um, you know, there's lots of really tall women wearing black gowns, and they're walking us through you know, this pretty green grass to look at the flowers, the cemetery, um, and then playing with this, this, my mother's friend's twins, Robbie and Bobby Robinson. That really is their name, Robbie and Bobby Robinson. And they were sheer terror. My mother's like, no, they're really nice boys. I'm like, mom, they flipped over the seesaw and I went flying. I mean, those are my earliest memories, just like total terror. Okay, as we tiptoe through the tulips over the dead guy's grave. Um, and taking, um, standing in line while everyone went into this little room. I had no idea why they're going in a little room. I'm not going in there, I'm just gonna wait in line. I'll just wait with everyone else, hang out. Um, and then there was, you know, it, it, it kind of culminated with Easter. And Easter Sunday's coming up and, you know, we're gonna have a coloring page. And it's an Easter chick, all right? Everyone's around a table, and they're telling you what color you need to color your, your, your page. And I look around the table, and everyone's is yellow um, with little orange beaks. And mine's black with purple feet. And I'm thinking, you know, it must have been Daffy Duck. I really, really, really like Daffy Duck. Okay? And uh, the next week, we do this little test where you put these things in your ears, and you're supposed to tell them if you hear a beep. And I don't hear anything. I don't hear bit, nothing. And they come back to my mom and they say, your daughter is pretty much deaf. She only has like a very small percentage of her hearing. 
And of course, my mom is like, what? What are you talking about? My daughter's fine. Nothing's going wrong. I grew up in a house with five other siblings. I have some very hyperactive brothers, screaming and yelling all the time, um, wrestling. And, you know, I was the human channel changer. You know, UHF, UVF, you sat in front of the TV, and if you were the youngest, which I was at the time, you had to change the channels on the TV. So I can hear the TV just fine because I'm literally sitting inside of the TV. <laughs> my hand, my little hand reaching up to change that channel as soon as someone yells. When it was time for dinner, my mother would go out on the porch, we lived up on a hill, and she would scream everybody's name and that it was time for dinner. And everyone heard it. No matter where you were in a neighborhood, you knew your mother was calling for dinner and you better get your ass there or you weren't eating. So my mother is feeling terrible about this. She doesn't understand how she could have possibly missed this. And I'm fine, totally fine with it. I know something's going on, no idea. That's already been the basis of my life. I have no idea why anyone's in a line. I don't know why I would color my duck yellow. I just did my own thing, going my own way. Not really worried about what anyone's saying on TV. I'm just watching what's going on. I'm just observing. So my mom's feeling guilty and not knowing how she's possibly missed this. But from there, um, it only gets worse. Because back in the 70s, the doctor smacked you on the ass, and if you cried, you were fine. Your baby's fine. Here you go. He's crying. Everything's good. Everything's fine. And as we go to see the specialist, they say things like, well, if she can't hear, she must also have a really, really low IQ. She must also be, she must also be mentally deficient. She's never going to sing. She's never going to play an instrument. She's going to have trouble forming relationships with peers. She uh, will never get uh, a higher degree. No singing, no musical instruments, nothing. This is what they're telling my mom. And so she gets pissed off and she fights for me. And she says, no, I'm not listening to this. I had speech lessons. Um, she would take me to the library and say, you know, you don't have to listen to the noise around you. Why don't you read some books? That's what you really enjoy doing. So from the age of four, every week we went to the library. And so a very, very avid reader. Might be why I ended up with an English teacher. Um, and then my brothers, they stood up for me. If I was getting bullied, they would just beat the shit out of the guy. <laughs> Done. All I had to say is, you know my brothers, right? And that was it. And they would stick up for me. I had those special teachers we all talk about. Music teacher, take me under her wing. My second grade teacher made sure that she made up for the failure of the first grade teacher and had me above grade level by the end of grade two. So I'm sorry, I know everything's good. Speech teacher, awesome. And, and now I have Jason, my partner in crime for the last 20 years. Will also fight for me too. As I'm sitting in the restaurant going, I have no idea what the waitress just asked me. But it's usually like this. The look. He knows the look. 
And he just steps in for me. And somebody would be like, do you always let your husband talk about you? And I said, when I can't hear you, yeah. He's <laughs> really good at it. He has natural talent for it. Um, I get really good at taking those little IQ tests in elementary school. And I finally looked at the guy and said, you know, I have all of this memorized. I know every single combination. You just throw that test at me. I've already taken this. I'm not taking it anymore. And he said, okay, done. Fourth grade. I'm telling a guy I'm not taking your test anymore. Um, and doing all the school solos and, and in high school and honor society and drama and um, singing chamber music and two college degrees. And I'm so in debt. But it was worth it. It was worth it. I'm not using any of it, but it was worth it. <laughs> and the front man in three rock bands. I still can't play a musical instrument, but I can sing. And uh, it's, it's given us some, it's given Jason and I both a lot of life experiences. And I want to say that a silver lining isn't just something positive that happened, but silver linings are the people in your life that will fight for you. I almost made it. So the people in your life, they're your silver linings, you tell them thank you. So yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Jen. That story rocked. I loved every bit of it. And uh, I really, really am thankful uh, to you as well as Freddie, because it's worth mentioning that both of you, uh, this was your first live Shenzhen Stories event. Um, I know uh, Jen's pretty new to Shenzhen, but she jumped right in there and just jumped into this community, and we are so glad she did. What a fantastic job by Jen. I loved that story. I, I loved uh, watching Jen's partner Jason in the room listening to it. Uh, it's, it's a powerful, powerful thing when you sort of recognize who you are and, and then you can find someone who also knows who you are and comes alongside you. Um, I just feel like this story reflects so much about what good partnership is and how we will make it through times like COVID or even times past this where we uh, need to be reminded that we are who we are and there are people who see us for that uh, and those are the people we need to surround ourselves with. I love Jen's story, but we are not done yet. I can barely contain my excitement uh, to give you guys this last story from, again, one more newcomer, uh, Justin Cloudon uh, is a, I guess, restaurateur from South America, and he comes to tell us uh, about the silver linings of COVID shutting his business down. Now, if you leave this story and you are not hungry, I am not sure what to tell you. Uh, but without further ado, please enjoy Justin Cloudon's story. So my first time up here, first time at this event. Um, so thank you for hosting. Um, not really sure why I'm here. My wife signed me up when she was drunk one night. <laughs> but uh, here goes nothing. 
there's just something about fried chicken that I absolutely love. I don't know if it's the crunchy exterior, the, the valleys and the mountains, the little nuggets of spice and flavor you find sprinkled throughout, or when you bite into it and that juicy interior because it's been brining for over a day and infusing it with all sorts of herbs and spices. And if you can't tell, I love talking about food. In fact, I love eating food, I love cooking food, I love smelling food, I just love food. So it was only a matter of time before I decided I was gonna quit my job as a strategy consultant for Fortune 500 Pharmaceuticals and open a fried chicken restaurant in Argentina. <laughs> so it started, so me and my buddy Timmy, one of my best buds, met him down there, him and I had a plan, it's about five years ago. We were gonna have a really nice barbecue on a Saturday, let's say, and we're getting ready for it the week before, we're gonna get all sorts of really nice cuts of beef. And it would happen to be one of those weeks, and this happened quite a bit in Argentina, where we end up going to three or four barbecues between Monday and Friday. So it hits Friday, and we just got beef coming out the pores. I mean, the meat sweats are real, y'all. And it hit Saturday, and we're like, yo, we can't do this, guys. Like, we just can't do another day of beef. Because in Argentina, all they do is eat beef and awesome red wine, which is not a bad thing, but it can be a lot sometimes. So we pull an audible, and we decide, all right, let's run down to the grocery store, let's buy a bunch of wings, texted all our friends and said, hey, what kind of sauce is that on your wings? Give us a couple ideas. And we, grew, and we grilled and we fried just the most delicious feast of fried and barbecue wings, all sorts of flavors, and it was absolutely delicious. But that wasn't too surprising. The surprising part was to look at all the people who were not Americans. So our group of friends had Argentines and Venezuelans and Colombians, and they tried these wings and they were like, che para, que es esto? No, no te puedo creer, que es esto? It was their first time having hot wings. Now, as an American, we're like, well, of course they're good. They're, they're wings. What do you expect? But for them, it was something totally new and totally novel. And this is what led us to open a restaurant. Now, I haven't gone to the part about lining yet. That's going to come a little later. But as you can imagine, in the year of 2020, restaurants took a big hit. This has been the hardest year for restaurants probably in the history of humanity. And there is a silver lining, I promise. I'm gonna get to that. So we're at this barbecue, everyone's loving the wings, we're having a great time, and we have this idea like, wait, what if we started just making wings? So before you knew it, we started calling ourselves the Chicken Bros, because we're two bros who just love eating chicken. Our friend who's an artist made us this really cool logo, and before we knew it, we started going to events and doing caterings and throwing parties. You know, at one point, we actually ran out a yacht and threw a chicken wing and beer-fused party on a yacht in the middle of the Rio de la Plata. <laughs> we ended up doing a giant catering for a 500-person Zumba International Festival class. We sold three plates of chicken because there was a misalignment 
around target audience. <laughs> Women doing Zumba don't really want to eat fried chicken. We were in, I swear, we were inside this giant gymnasium frying fried chicken while folks were dancing to like Zumba. And we're like, why the hell are we here right now? And then this grew into more and more events and festivals and, and whatnot. And before he knew it, I keep saying that, but my friend had a bar and this bar was closed on Mondays. And he said, hey, well, what if we just came in and just cooked our wings on your Monday while you're closed? Like, you know, why not? Happened to be during the football season and thus was born your Monday night excuse. This event, this weekly pop-up, became the most popular ticket item in Buenos Aires. I mean, every Monday we were packing it out like it was a Friday or Saturday night. People would come in from all over because they knew this was the one night you can get the real American experience. Get the wings, get the football, get the beer flowing. And it was exciting. It was amazing. And at some point, you start to realize that your hobby or your passion is taking precedent over your day job. So we did the most logical thing, and we both quit our jobs. Because our friend wanted to leave their bar. So we took it over. We... You know, raise money, put my consulting skills to work, raise, you know, $150,000 from friends and families and investors, and we built out this brand new restaurant. You know, we tore everything out, put a whole new bar in, made it our own, because we wanted to really make it chicken bros, the way that we really imagined it. The next two, three years were amazing. I mean, to, to build a place that becomes a gathering point for so many people, to bring them together around food and drink and times. I mean, we became the spot. During the World Cup, we were packed from rafters to rafters at 6 a.m. to watch Australia versus France. We had sexy Sunday brunch on Sundays where we'd have hip-hop DJs playing, you know, college kids downing mimosas all day long. And those we had these... Uh, these little beer bongs that are actually like champagne flutes. Shambongs, they're called. Classy stuff, classy stuff. <laughs> we would do all-you-can-eat wings on Tuesday, and we would have all these amazing events and, 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 and experiences, and it was just this beautiful thing. Because the thing about Argentines is that they don't eat chicken. It is a beef-loving country. I mean, chicken's not even considered meat. It's considered vegetable. It's that serious. <laughs> They don't like spicy food. So we decided to open a chicken wing restaurant with spicy food in Argentina. People looked at us like we were crazy. But over the years, it changed, and it got really popular. And it changed the way that Argentines actually eat food. More restaurants opened after us serving fried chicken and spicy food. You would see lots of Asian restaurants opening up also with spicy and flavorful food. And we had a real impact on the city. It was the most beautiful thing to watch and experience on the surface. In the background, opening a company in Argentina is a gargantuan task. Whether it's the bribery, whether it's learning how to navigate an ever-complex regulatory environment where rules are really suggestions until they're not, whether it was fights with neighbors, our roof falling in because it was poorly made, and it flooded, or the sewer coming up and being covered 
in human excrement and fried oil chicken grease. Yeah. Um, it was tough. It was tough. Whether it was the, the biker gang union stopping us from doing deliveries because we wouldn't pay them their fee. Standing outside in leather jackets, arms folded, like they're going to beat us down. It was really, really tough. It was a really tough experience. But the hardest part of having a restaurant in Argentina or a business in general is Argentina. And I love this country. It is, I, it's, it has become my second home. But they can't get their shit together. It's the kind of country that is constantly in economic ruin. Inflation varies between 30 to 50% every year, which means that we're changing prices every three months. It means you have no idea what products will come into the country or not, having to change your recipes from one day to the next. It means that people don't have money in their pockets to pay for our wings. Our wings, when we open, a plate of 10 wings costs about $7 US. Most recently, about $2.50. Devaluation, inflation, economic instability, defaults. All this stuff makes running a business incredibly difficult. And despite our commercial success, we were struggling to get by. At any moment, we were two weeks away from absolute failure. And we'll be okay. But I would always think of my employees, especially those that came from Venezuela, where they lost absolutely everything, to come make a new life in Argentina. And we had to keep the restaurant going, even if it wasn't good for us. And this would go on through all the successes. And it all came to a head in October of last year. It reached a point where I felt like I was just on a hamster wheel. At this point, too, I'd gone back to consulting full-time as my income source. My partner had also gone back to work. He had a startup as his income source. And Chicken Rose had returned to a passion project because it couldn't pay the bills. And it reached a point where we had to make a decision for what's best for my family. And we chose to move to China. Spoiler alert, hey. <laughs> and all this is going on, and you know, we have a general manager who's running the restaurant, you know, trying to keep it going, and everything's really tough, really, really tough. And then the pandemic happens. <laughs> I remember where we were. It was March 19th, and I'm standing in our kitchen in the restaurant. I'm looking at our half-drank kegs of beer that's going to go to waste, our chicken that couldn't be frozen to go to waste, all the fresh produce, because the president just announced the day before that there's going to be a two-week mandatory lockdown. Argentina ended up having one of, actually, the world's longest lockdown and one of the strictest. You couldn't go outside for fresh air or to walk or to exercise. It was to the grocery and back. There were police and the National Guard on every corner. Even Christine had trouble walking our dog. It was very, very tough. I remember looking at our employees' face and knowing that, you know, for any restaurant, closing for two weeks is a death sentence. And they know that. So we turn off the lights put on the alarm, lock the door, and walk out. We go home, a few days pass, and we start to realize that this is not going to be just two weeks. This is going to go on for a long time. 
But something kind of caught our interest as we sort of sat in our homes trying to figure out what to do next. Social media was absolutely silent, at least from a restaurant perspective. Usually you get all these sort of ads and folks making food and all this great things and it's just absolutely silent. So we had an idea. Thus was born Chicken in the Kitchen with the Bros. Yes, there was a theme song. With my partner, we launched an online mini-series on Instagram. We would cook from the, from the comforts of our own kitchen fried chicken to show our customers how to make it at home, how to bring that chicken, and chicken bros experience straight to your house. People were so excited. We'd show how to make chicken parmesan and wings and different sorts of chicken recipes. And they would do it at their homes. They would show us, they'd post it, and they'd, and they'd get everyone excited about it. And the whole social media and Instagram was just full of people making chicken in a country that doesn't like chicken. <laughs> in a country that doesn't like spice, folks trying to make their own buffalo sauce. And it was exciting. And we quickly realized that, well, when we do eventually open up again, it's definitely going to be via delivery. So we started to revamp our whole outlook on delivery. It always been part of our, it always been part of our business, but a very small part. But the problem is they charge you 30% commission fees to use the apps. So we developed our own mini application on our phone, our own delivery platform, hard delivery person, all while we're still closed. <laughs> we started to invest to grow the business. This was an opportunity and to hate to be cliche, but to make lemonades out of lemon. We revamped the packaging, the out of the box. We had these little QR codes you could scan and pull up chicken bro playlists. So you could be at home eating your chicken bros, listen to old school hip hop and R&B. We did all this and 2020 became our best year yet. Now, when we set out to do this, Chicken Bros, the idea was never to open just one restaurant, right? It just didn't make sense to us. We wanted to grow and build a market from nothing. We wanted to grow a whole new category in Argentina and in Latin America. And we wanted franchises everywhere. That was always a dream. And it always just seemed just out of reach. No matter how popular we were and how full the restaurant was, it never could quite happen because of the country and the situation that we were in. And when we chose to leave Argentina and move to China, it was the hardest decision I ever had to make in my entire life. I had to leave behind something that my partner and I poured our blood, sweat, and tears into. Just leave it behind. And while I'd still be working on it from abroad, because what I do, I can usually do on the computer remotely, it was really painful, a really hard decision. But the both of us I decided, well, you know, it's been the same thing for a couple of years. You know, time to you know, put myself and my family first. Well, I'm happy to say that in October, as I sat in the shower of a quarantine hotel in Guangzhou, at two in the morning, we signed our first franchise. And this franchise is opening in literally 10 days. And we could not be more excited about it and that is our and my silver lining. I mean, and I think about it in the context of the global world and what we've all been through as a collective people because it's been a really shitty year for everyone in this room. And I think about restaurants, all those that have closed or have struggled to stay open, all those families who now can't feed 
their children because their restaurants have gone under. I think about all that pain, but I think about that somehow, some way, we found a way to keep on moving. And that is the silver lining for Chicken Bros this year. And I'm, I'm very grateful and appreciative that it worked out this way for us, because that is not the normal story. That is not the typical story. So finally, Chicken Bros has its wings. It'll hopefully begin to fly in 10 days. And uh, I'm thankful for that silver lining. All right, and with Justin's story, that wraps us up. We are thrilled that you stayed and listened to us. If you are in Shenzhen and you would like to not listen to this on a podcast, but join us in person, we really invite you to do that. Uh, we are sort of slowly finding uh, a new home at Morse Coffee. Uh, they are fantastic. Uh, the, the food and coffee are great, but the people there are amazing, uh, and they are just the greatest hosts ever. Uh, so please come on down and join us. If you're not in town or you can't make it that night, that's fine too. Please stay in touch with us any way you can. We're on Instagram, at Shenzhen Stories, Facebook, Twitter, all at Shenzhen Stories. Please just look us up. Uh, we post all of our events at Shenzhen Now, uh, so you can get details there as well. Uh, or, you know, just directly message me uh, through any of those social media platforms and I'll get back to you. Or just say hi. We really, really would love to meet you. That's about all for us today. We will have another live event coming up on March 5th and the theme of that will be unlucky. Uh, so please, please, if you've got a story, trust that we want to hear it or if you just want to come and share your space with someone else's story, that is very cool too. I would like to give a huge thank you uh, to David Shepard, uh, who co-organizes this event, uh, Eddie Bruce, who does a lot of our sound editing and engineering, and I would also like to give a huge thank you to Jamie Bacicalupo, who uh, co-organizes the event and uh, does a lot of story acquisition for us. And so uh, please, if, if you see us at any of the live events, come up and shake our hands, and, we, and we'd love to get in contact with you and connect with you. Our last thank you is to those Lavender Whales for letting us use their music for the intro and outro. Uh, this song, I'm So Proud of My Friends, can be found on uh, Spotify and Bandcamp, and I really encourage you guys to go out there, uh, give them a listen, and if you like it, uh, purchase the album. They are fantastic people uh, and dear friends. As with all of our live events, we ask our audience a question to be answered anonymously. And so we'd like to do that with you on the podcast. If you're out there listening and you'd like to participate in this community and tell uh, your story, uh, we would love to also include you uh, in this process and in this sort of journey of collecting stories and sharing space with them. And so I'll ask you guys a question, and if you feel like it, jump onto those social media platforms and give us your answer, and perhaps we'll share that story on our next podcast. So I will give you guys the same question I gave our live audience. What is the worst date you've ever been on? Looking forward to these answers. And as always, keep being awesome. See you next time.